0: Greetings, my friends! We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the next hour or so. You are interested in the filmmakers, the awards, the box office returns. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened during that fateful production. We are giving you all the evidence, based only on the secret testimonies of four friends who really enjoyed this movie, the acting. writing. My friends, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Can your heart stand the shocking facts about Ed Wood? Touchstone. I'm your host, Mike DeKalb, and we've got a special episode for you today because, quite frankly, we're going to be talking about a film that I believe is one of the best that Touchstone Pictures ever produced. And in order to give it the respect that it deserves, I brought in several of my closest friends, people I've known for years that love this movie, in order to have what I hope will be a very entertaining discussion. Of course, we have my regular co-host on the show, Chad Smart. How are you, Chad?
1: I am good. I am. I'm looking forward to this discussion. You know, we've been talking a little bit off air and uh, yeah, I think this is probably going to be either the most interesting and exciting conversation or the most confusing and uh, overlapping conversation. So
0: we'll see how it goes. Oh yeah. And that's up to me to keep it <laughs> on the rails basically. Yeah. So now we'll look at our guests. All four of us, we we attended film school at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale and uh, we worked at the student run TV station while we were there. And both of these guests have expressed interest in being on this particular episode. I feel like it was seemingly from the moment we started the podcast. Um, first up from Chicago, Illinois, we have Mike Meyer, an independent filmmaker himself. Welcome to the show, Mike. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing fantastic. I am mega stoked to be doing this. Uh, Chad, I am putting money on enlightening and confusing.
1: <laughs> I'll take the over-under on that one. <laughs>
0: yeah, Exactly there you go <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then finally all the way from melbourne australia we have sean reynolds sean's actually the one who introduced me to this film how are you doing sean Uh, oh, good day mates yeah good <laughs> i'm doing great and
3: i'm uh, i also think it's going to be a very uh both enlightening and confusing uh uh podcast for you guys but yeah i'm doing great and i am like like mike mics like the mics i'm super stoked to be here um nice to see your uh beautiful faces none none of you have aged a day in 20 years
1: (laughs) and i just want to say real quick mike based on your your introduction sean is actually in the future from us right now so he knows how this show is actually going to go
0: i always forget
2: about
1: that he knows
0: about future events (laughs) yes (laughs) future (laughs) events such as this podcast have already hit me in the future But the funny part is, you know, I feel like this is the perfect group to discuss Ed Wood because we all acted in each other's films while we were in college. And it's we kind of formed our own troupe that was very similar to the one that Ed surrounded himself with. So we'll just jump right in. And like I said, we are going to look at one of the great movies from Touchstone Pictures. It was released on September 30th of 1994, and it's simply entitled Ed Wood. All right, everybody, let's finish this picture. Touchstone Pictures presents Johnny Depp. Martin Landau,
2: Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, and Bill Murray in the true story. Give him a hand. rolling. Of an unforgettable filmmaker.
0: We're making another movie. I got the church of Beverly Hills to put up the cash. How do you get all your friends to get baptized? Just so you can make a monster movie. And his legacy that will live forever. How do you burn this up? Shake his legs around. Looks like he's killing. Oh!
4: This is the one. Everybody! I command you! This is the one I'll be remembered for. Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film.
1: Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better. Hello?
0: The film was based on the book Nightmare of Ecstasy, The Life and Art of Edward D. Wood Jr. by Rudolph Gray. Sean, I think you told me you have actually read that book. I have. Yeah. I actually, so I, you know, I saw the movie in 94
3: and uh, that kind of introduced me to Ed Wood. My dad had watched, I think plan nine before. And then, uh, so I had a had a little context from from him, but, uh, I've, I loved the movie. I fell in love with the movie. So I sought out the book and I read, yeah, I read the book in 94 and I've read it a, a handful of times since then.
0: And it seems like it was very true to life in the sense that what was depicted on the screen.
3: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we were talking before your podcast about some other, uh, Movies that were based on um, kind of like bio- biographical books and stuff, and how it didn't necessarily translate. But I, I would say that Nightmare of Ecstasy, um, the sto- it's all done basically as as a series of interviews with the people around Ed Wood, and it was written after, obviously after his death and everything. But his, you know, his his wife was still around, and a lot of a lot of the people, uh, Vampire was still alive, um, John Bunny Breckenridge was still alive. So a lot of these people were still alive at the time, and they they were able to kind of paint this picture. And a lot, like, really, a lot of the stories that you see in the movie Ed Wood um, are exactly as the people kind of describe them.
0: Yeah, I think the credit for that goes to the screenwriters who did the adaptation, and that was Scott Alexander and Larry Karashevsky, who have gone on to make a lot of the great biopics about offbeat characters and whatnot but this was the first one that they had done they were roommates at usc film school their only prior work to this film was involved with the problem child cinematic universe we'll call uh the first problem child film debuted in 1990 and then the sequel was released in 1991 i totally forgot about this i don't know if any of you guys remember there was an animated series based on problem child which came out in 1993 there was a second and final season that premiered just before the release of Ed Wood in September '94. Do you guys remember the animated series of Problem Child? I guess you don't listen no, to my other podcast <laughs> where I'm re-watching every
1: episode of that and commenting on it. Yes, it's Childless Problems. It's so re-watching, you watched, you, did, you watched it <laughs> live, Chad. <laughs> you know, I had other things to do in college besides go to class.
0: Okay. <laughs> Uh well, Alexander Karshevsky's script was set up at Columbia Pictures with Michael Lehman set to direct. Michael Lehman at that point, had done two of my favorite movies, Heathers and Hudson Hawk. We got two new guests on this show tonight mm-hmm. Chad. I, I I wanna believe that I'm not the only person that likes Hudson Hawk one of my favorites yes, yes. one of All my absolute th- favorites. favorites. I love Heathers,
3: so at least, you know, you got, you got one in each camp.
0: <laughs> Hudson Hawk. Hudson Hawk is like a live-action Looney Tunes cartoon. I love it. Um, Daniel Waters wrote that. He wrote Heathers. He would write yeah. Ford Fairlane. And I've seen both those films in the theater with with the Q&A with Daniel Waters. God, I love those movies. And I forgot Michael Lehman had attended USC with Scott Alexander and Larry Karashevsky, So that kind of was the connection there. Denise Dinovi, who was one of the producers of Heathers, came on to produce... Ed Wood with Tim Burton and the company that they had together. Michael Lehman would go on to drop out so that he could direct Airheads, but he stayed on as an executive producer. So now we need a director, enter Tim Burton, who was already producing the film. I think the legend goes that Mm -hmm. he wanted to make the film in black and white, but when Columbia Pictures rejected that idea, they put the film into turnaround and Disney picked it up. Now it was a return of sorts because Tim Burton had worked with Disney before. He wrote and produced... The Nightmare Before Christmas in 1993 for Touchstone. For whatever reason, he was a producer of the wonderful film that Chad loves that mm-hmm. I don't want to speak about, Cabin Boy. I, I mean, we, again, there you go. We got two people on the show. Yeah. You got any, any support for your love of Cabin yeah. Boy from Come Sean on. or
1: Mike? Come on, Mike, Sean, back me up on this one. Cabin Boy is not a
2: terrible film. I love Kevin, you know it's been yeah i I'll abstain just because it's been a really, really long time and I don't know if it's the fog of nostalgia, but nostalgia says it's amazing
0: so uh, but but yeah have not I've uh, not revisited in a while your brain is wrong but <laughs> Tim burton, and, and of course tim burton did begin his career as a disney animator in the early 1980s i saw that he you know he directed five films prior to this i'm gonna guess that everybody probably loves all five of these movies <laughs> peewee's big adventure beetlejuice batman edward scissorhands and batman returns and i, I love i'm gonna i'm gonna guess that unless like i said sean mentioned knowing about Ed Wood from a young age i wouldn't have known about him but i feel like i knew about tim burton from a pretty young age, because I was right there with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I mean, I I, I got to believe we're all of that same age group that we probably all watched Pee-wee's Playhouse. And then when the first movie came out, I had, to, I mean, it didn't play in the theater near me. I had to wait and run out and get it on VHS. But I'm sure you guys have probably all seen this, Chad.
1: Yeah, I'd say the when I bought my first VCR, the store that I bought it from had a video club and you got one free rental a month. My first rental was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Excellent.
0: Yeah, we, we actually had a nice. beta,
3: a beta uh tape player and one of the first
0: movies we got was uh yeah, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I'll defer to you, Mike. Your first memory of Tim Burton, is it was it Pee-Wee as well? Uh yeah, I think I think going
2: back, uh yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely Pee-wee's Big Adventure, definitely like early memories of uh, you know, the breakfast machine and mm-hmm. and all of that's all that really good stuff.
0: Yeah, I think Sean, I know you came with me. Chad, were you with us when we went to the um to LACMA to go see Pee Wee's Big Adventure on the big screen with the Goonies yes. as a yeah. double feature yeah. of movies from nineteen eighty five? Yeah. It was the three of us. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was great. That's so funny. All right. Well, playing the title character of Ed Wood is the great Johnny Depp. You know, at this point his career had gone back ten years with a very memorable debut in nineteen eighty four. I'm sure you guys all know what that movie was. Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. I, I mean, I'm trying to get my wife to watch that movie, and I'm like, it's not that bad. It isn't that bad. You got to watch it just for Johnny Depp and his his uh, demise. He quickly followed that up with a 1985 sex comedy called Private Resort. And now, when I first got a VHS player, my parents were recording movies off of HBO and Showtime all the time. And that's one of the ones that we had in our Scotch VHS blank tape uh, library of films. Private Resort with Johnny Depp and Rob Morrow and Hector Elizondo. Has anybody else seen that one? I've seen the VHS. No, but my brain. (laughs) Yeah, my brain is sketching
2: the uh, the VHS cover and what it might look Mm -hmm. like definitely from the blockbuster wild comedies section <laughs>
0: i'm sure there was some body parts there's some exposed legs or or just something oh my i can just picture it yeah well of course johnny depp had that bit part in platoon where he played the vietnamese translator and he followed it up with four seasons as the star of 21 jump street now of course his film career took off soon after that with starring roles in john Waters' cry baby and of course edward scissorhands for tim burton his most recent work was two films from 1993 which i've not seen either one benny and june and what's eating gilbert grape classics classics i've seen both yeah i've seen both of them good ones gilbert Gilbert grape Mm -hmm. gave us leonardo dicaprio and benny and june gave us the proclaimers so i'll (laughs) I'll take it (laughs) starting at the great bella lugosi is martin landau now he was of course a legendary actor whose career spans all the way back to the early 1950s he'd studied at the actor's studio in new york city he was best friends with james dean he transitioned to film roles with uh, North by Northwest for Alfred Hitchcock. I love that movie obviously. Cleopatra and his ba- but his greatest success came with his role as Rolly Hand on Mission Impossible. He played that role for 3 seasons was nominated for an Emmy in all 3 seasons. Yeah. He continued working through the 70s and 80s but nothing of note until the late 1980s with movies like Tucker the Man and His Dream and Crimes and Misdemeanors. He got Oscar nominations for both films. His most recent credits before Ed Wood were Sliver with Sharon Stone and I think, is that Billy Baldwin? That's the Baldwin. Yeah, that's, that's the, the Baldwin. Baldwin. Yeah, yeah. That's and I wanted, and then they also did Intersection, which yeah. so I think that was the Richard Gere, Lolita Davidovich yeah. film. And I I, don't, yeah. I mean, I've not seen either of those, so yeah. Uh, whenever I think of Martin Landau, I go to when
1: the Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise came out, MTV did a like show at the premiere and Martin Landau was there and Kennedy kind of asking like why are you here and then he like walked off and then came back like five minutes later he's like i was in the tv show you should do your research before you're going to come out here and
0: i i i remember that as well yeah all right well let's look at the supporting cast who got sarah jessica parker who had been a a, no stranger to disney she had just done hocus pocus a few years earlier i forgot she was also in there's another movie that i haven't seen that i'm probably going to get shamed for flight of the navigator it's on disney plus not a sponsor but do i need to see that one I don't know if you need to see that one. That
2: that movie is tattooed on my heart. That was such a <laughs> formative movie for me. I, I think it was like I had taped it off the Disney Channel and would just watch it over and over and over again. She only has a, she has a very minor part in it, but uh, definitely one of the bigger stars. Oh, uh, and in line with what we've been talking about, a uh, person who has a really big part, a voice part in that movie is... Uh, Pee-wee himself, Rubens. Paul Rubens, as yeah, the I... voice of uh, of the ship.
0: Yeah, right, I yeah. forgot about that. Chad has referenced that sh- that movie on this podcast before, so I do feel like I need to catch up and watch that one, yeah. Uh, we've also got Patricia Arquette. She had just done a movie for Hollywood Pictures called Holy Matrimony, which I'd be surprised if you guys seen that one. <laughs> if you want to watch it, it's streaming for free on YouTube, uh, but uh, at least it gave us to us Gordon Levitt. Uh, she, of course, was also in True Romance just before this. Uh, we got Bill Murray. Sean, do we like Bill Murray? Do we like him? Uh, look, you can still appreciate the work,
3: I think. I mean, he hasn't, you know, but uh, he sounds sounds like a bit of a creep or a
0: jerk. I don't know, you know. Well, I mean, I, the funny part is he did, he has done a touch show movie before this, and it was What About Bob? And Chad, I know Chad loves it. I really did not like that movie. And I I know how much you love Bill Murray. I'm, Mike, I'm assuming you do too. Do you guys like What About Bob? Because yeah. I sure didn't. Why do you hate fun, Dekal? <laughs> <laughs>
3: I mean, I think anytime Bill Murray just plays someone who's so obnoxious, he just drives the other characters to the brink of insanity. I mean, I mean, who hasn't been there? I mean, I feel like that was basically my entire personality from uh, the early '90s to uh, now.
0: Yeah, I was Richard Dreyfus in that movie. I, I, I the whole time I was watching it, I was like, I would have just locked myself in a bed in a room and not come out. I, I just, I could not, could not stand. There's a great person. Somebody cut that trailer to look like a like a thriller, and it's it's so well done. If you go watch it on YouTube, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Oh. the, oh, the no.
2: road to enjoying what about bob uh it's
3: baby steps you gotta baby take baby steps baby steps
0: mm-hmm. baby steps in oh, out of the office no no <laughs> please don't reference please don't reference
3: i love uh, i love though that mike dekav is like I, I was richard dreyfuss in that film like i i think i don't think anyone who watches that movie is like i'm richard Dreyfus <laughs> in this Let's just of course, it's like the most Mike DeKalb like <laughs> lens to see the film. And then,
1: uh, yeah. like, I think this describes the Mike Sean relationship that we Dynamic. had through college. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. Yes. Sean didn't
0: annoy I, me though. I, <laughs> I, I,
3: I stole Mike's family away from him. Uh, you know, inserted myself into all of his awards. Yeah. Oh De- DeKalb is all of our Richard Dreyfus. It's just <laughs> by a different.
0: Place. Oh, is that it? <laughs> You're yeah. the shark. You're the shark from yeah. Jaws, Mike. Is that what it is?
2: <laughs> I'm the pile of mashed potatoes in uh, Close Encounters.
3: <laughs> That's exactly how I would describe you, Mike. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> he's he's a human the a pile of mashed potatoes in oh Close Encounters. Yes. Oh my god. Who else is in the cast? Jeffrey Jones. He done Beetlejuice for Tim Burton. He done Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He also did a movie called Howard the Duck, which we're not going to talk about. We also have we also have Lisa Marie, who was Tim Burton's girlfriend at the time. I looked; she didn't really have anything before this, Not, nothing of note. She'd just been doing some modeling, and then of course Juliet Landau. Now, the funny thing about it is when I saw this movie after I'd seen Buffy, so I knew who she was. You know, if she's the daughter of Martin Landau. But then I've also since, as an adult, gone back and watched the old Mission Impossible series, and I know who Barbara Bain is. And so when I see her now, and I'm watching this movie, I see Barbara Bain in her in her face more than I see Martin Landau. She really does look. look a lot like her mother.
1: Well, uh, good for her.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> is, this is not the bullet. Yeah, this is true. There's a lot of like really small and bit parts in this movie and I know Mike before we recorded you were talking about let's going over some of the cameos. So, I'll kind of rip through a few of these ones. The first one, Chad, tell me about William James Myers. Well, you know, he is a classically trained
1: Shakespearean actor. <clears throat> Got his start in the uh grandest stage of them all at WrestleMania 2 where he faced Randy the Macho Man Savage, under his better-known name, George the Animal Steel. Yeah. And he was also a college professor,
0: I believe, as yeah. rumor has it. So Can't put anything by Chad. I was like, if I use the real name, maybe I can slide it under I, him and say who I looked it up bad. right but, before the show because I wanted was... to
1: see how long his wrestling career lasted. And if well, he was funny, still wrestling
0: at this time. The funny part, if you look at his actor filmography, he's in Ruthless People. Apparently, they're watching a wrestling match, and he's one oh. of the wrestlers in the movie. So this is not his first touchstone movie. I thought that was kind of bizarre. Vincent D'Onofrio also returns to Touchstone. He, of course, played Four in *Adventures in Babysitting*. The mechanic. I forgot about that. <laughs> Chad loves his character actors. Mike Starr is one of those those guys. I I it was funny when I was looking through his career. He plays George Weiss in the movie the, who produces *Glenda* *Glenda*. And it was like, wow, he was in *Offbeat*. He was in *New York Stories*. He was in *Billy Bathgate*. Or he was also in *Cabin Boy*. And so I was I was like, okay, he's one of those faces, and he really was a very prolific when it comes to Touchstone pictures. Rance Howard, Ron Howard's father, he has a cameo in this film. Mm -hmm. He was just in Terminal Velocity, the movie we talked about in our last episode for Hollywood Pictures. As soon as I saw him, I was like, that's the guy that's (laughs) going to produce Bride of the Monster for Ed Wood. And I, like an idiot, I look up after the fact that you're like, oh, that's Ron Howard's dad. He was a legendary actor, yeah. A funny thing about that is, so he
2: plays the old cowboy, uh, or the old meatpacking guy, Old Man McCoy, in the movie. Yeah, and his son, the guy's like he's a good boy. He's a little (laughs) slow, but a good boy. His his son, who you see later saying, uh, uh, "You need to stay away from the old Willows (laughs) place." That is Bill Cusack, brother of John and Joan.
0: Oh wow! I I thought I saw him in like Cusack saw Cusack in the credits. I didn't realize it was all connected. This is why we brought you on, Mike. This is why we have you here. And then I'll defer to Mike or Sean on this one, but. There's a lot of little cameos from different people that were in Ed's real life.
2: Yeah. So, well, so Ed Wood is, uh, the movie does have a lot of familiar faces from Ed's career and uh, like including Conrad Brooks who played a cop. He's the bartender in the, in the scene with um, Orson Wells. Uh, He kind of made a weird cottage industry about, of like appearing in any low budget movie that would have him until his death in 2017. Uh, he's got like a hundred credits. Gregory Walcott, who plays Jeff, the star of plan nine uh, is in the scene. Uh, it's the second bride of the Adam fundraising scene who says, uh, uh, I was like, who does a vampire play? He's actually one of the better. I think he's one of the better
0: actors in Ed's, uh, in Ed's stable. Before I forget, there was one other cameo in that scene with Gregory Walcott, and that is writers Scott Alexander and Larry Karashevsky. They both are wearing tuxedos. They're part of uh, Vampire's Entourage. I had to go back and watch that again. And having met both of them before, I, I recognize them instantly for sure. Yeah. Okay.
2: I will say if you, uh, being uh, on a podcast, like being on a podcast, people are on a podcast platform. If you see Larry Karashevsky's name as a guest on any podcast, please check it out that guy has a cinema galaxy brain and like you will learn quite a bit from uh, from him he isn't he's an he's a northwest indiana guy
0: he is that's right ah. yeah and I, I did recently find out that he's actually a, he's on the restoration board at the academy of motion picture arts and sciences like he's intimately mm-hmm. involved uh well this part of the show normally this is where we, we, like, we Chad and i always joke that we're not Critics, we we don't do like full on reviews, but we like to post questions to each other to talk about what we thought of the film. And so I'm going to just go around the room with a smaller questions, brief questions. I know that you guys have, love this movie, and we can kind of talk at length about it. The first question I have, which is kind of what the movie was known for at the time, was how amazing is Martin Landau? I, I, I thought he absolutely disappeared into the role, and it's especially prevalent when you watch the real Bella Lugosi in those Edward movies that he looks exactly the same. So, Chad, first, how amazing was Martin Landau? Not very. No.
1: <laughs> no, but Martin Landau, you know, like we kind of hinted and talked about earlier, I wasn't familiar with him prior to Ed Wood, because I couldn't tell you anything that he had done previously, but he embodied that character, or, you know, that living person, if you will. And I think the, the Oscar award that he got for Best Supporting Actor you know, was well earned. And even though Sam Jackson might disagree, but no, he, he was really good. And I think you needed a star of, I don't want to say that magnitude, but that heft of how, what he brought to the character to really ground the Ed Wood movie.
0: The irony being that, that, that Bela Lugosi had to be the star in Ed Wood's movies to help them get financing as well. (laughs) Mike Meyer, tell me about Martin Landau. How, how incredible was he?
2: I mean, it's it's amazing. Like it is. It's absolutely transformative. And, I, and and like watching interviews with him talking about the role as himself, you just see the degree to which he just sunk into it. And it, it was in, it's interesting, you know, watching interviews from back then, not just Martin Landau, but his um, buddy in Oscar, Rick Baker, uh, who developed his makeup and rick baker would also he talk about like well martin physically isn't perfect to play bella because he has like a much longer face and you know bella you know has a very round face and cuz it is a it is a character created not out of whole cloth but definitely you know tailored toward the movie and yeah i mean just in a movie full of what are kind of just fairy tale characters like Everyone plays their role, not entirely superficially, but definitely at a level that's just about like, you know, nothing gets in the way of like Ed's boundless optimism. And here's this guy who has, he's got mileage, you know, and you can feel it. And you can, you know, and when he has optimism, you can feel it like creeping up through the cave, you know, and the accent as well. I guess he went through some pretty extensive. Uh, hungarian dialect training with i believe someone he worked with on uh space 1999 i, I read that he, um
0: peter medak the the director that he, he 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 talked to him after the fact and i think peter medak said you did it great you the, what did he say you you weren't doing an accent you, you were doing a character trying to do an accent or something like that yeah like
2: it was it was you didn't sound Hungarian." you sounded like a Hungarian trying not to do a Hungarian accent. Yeah. Which I think is really important to Bella's character because the accent was an albatross for him. It followed him around everywhere. It prevented him from getting roles. And you can see him, it's interesting seeing him in movies where he'll come out of the accent a little and you would say like, oh, his accent broke. It's like, no, that's actually him succeeding in trying to do an American accent. You know, Mm. because he's trying to emerge from it. I always thought it was interesting. I have this theory that his accent, because it's so, he's trying to emerge from it. When people do like a Dracula accent, they're never doing Bella. They're doing the Count from Sesame Street. (laughs) Because it's, it's a way more like in the sort of like zeitgeist. It's a thing that people our age especially are more familiar with his voice isn't so accented and like, yeah, I think that's what, what that what that's what was really interesting about it. And like, yeah, when he, when he actually plays Bella in the movie and he's, has those scenes, you know, like the home, I have no home. He's really going to town on it. You know, it's as wow. if he's in, you know, it's as if he's doing Shakespeare, you know, don't want the classic horror films anymore.
4: Today it's all giant books. Giant spiders, giant grasshoppers. Who would believe such nonsense? <laughs> the old ones were much spookier. They had
1: castles, full moons. They were mythic. They had a poetry to them. Yes. And you know what else? The women. the women prefer the traditional monsters. The women? Oh. The pure horror, it both repels and attracts them. Because in their collective unconsciousness, they have the agony of childbirth. Oh. The blood. The blood is horror.
4: You know I never thought of that. Take my word for it. If you want to make out with the young lady, take her to
0: see Dracula. Sean, I'll let you lead off then by, with the next question, which was, was Johnny Depp the right person to play the title role? Did he make himself, did he make the role at his own and separate himself from, like, the movie star status that he had at that point? Or do you think it would have been better with somebody who was unknown? Yeah,
3: well, I mean, I think I think again, uh, Johnny Depp just disappears in that role as well. I mean, he, obviously he's Johnny Depp, but like the, uh, I think he said something like he plays, oh, I forget which characters he said, he, he he basically based the character off of, like, Ronald Reagan and I forget who the other. Person Ronald was. Reagan, but,
0: Casey Kasem, and the Tin Man.
3: The Tin Man, yeah. I mean, <laughs> just like this amalgamation of like this, you know, this hodgepodge of characters. But like, obviously, I would imagine the real Ed Wood. Uh, you know, spoiler alert. Uh, obviously, devolved into you know alcoholism and stuff. And you see a bit of that. You know, he whenever he's faced with a problem, he definitely starts drinking and stuff in the um in the movie and everything. But um, he he plays the character as this. Just, just again relentlessly optimistic and i think you know one of the things about that movie like i saw it i was a i was a young teenager when i saw it in 1994 and the movie inspired me to go to film school because i was like this is you know this is a guy who wants to wanted to make stories you know wanted to tell you stories and make movies and stuff um and for whatever reason he didn't have uh either the talent or you know whatever to to reach you know where he where he wanted I was like, you know, that, that just really inspired me. And I think a lot of that goes to Johnny Depp because he he plays the character as just someone who, uh, as Chumbawamba said, you know, gets knocked mm-hmm. down, gets up again, drinks a whiskey drink, <laughs> drinks a lager drink. He's I mean, just everything. Yeah. He's the Chumbawamba of, uh, of characters. And um, yeah, no, I just, I just, I love Johnny Depp's portrayal in this. And, you know, really different because Johnny Depp, yeah, he was like a teenage heartthrob and... Uh, a lot of, the, of his early roles and then you know obviously um, Edward Scissorhands he was you know just this this weirdo and everything but he, he plays it he plays this character that you know obviously in in uh Johnny Depp's later years it's just you know you look at Captain Jack Sparrow kind of devolves into a parody of itself with like scarves and 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 just quirks and stuff but Ed Wood is like is a really interesting character
0: yeah, I feel like just from a physical standpoint, too, my my father, my father loved this movie uh, because I think I gave him the VHS tape after you gave me the VHS tape. And he used to always say that Johnny Depp, as Ed Wood, reminded him of Ricky Ricardo. Um, <laughs> yeah. That that That's especially because being black and white, I guess, as well. The funny part is watching, having it's watched. It's the hair. Yeah, that too. <laughs> it's having, the hair, yeah. Having, having watched the real Ed Wood movies recently, I thought it was funny that, that Ed Wood is very, had a was bigger stature, like he was in the Marines, you know, like he's built like a linebacker almost. Like he's a pretty, and, and so they have Johnny Depp was a little bit more more wiry than that. But it, I think it, it, it does work. Chad, how did you feel about Johnny Depp and the title role? And did he do it justice? He, he did. And,
1: you know, I was thinking that he, Johnny Depp and Tim Burton have collaborated about 27 times now. And this is the Johnny Depp that I would like to see more in Tim Burton's film, because I think whenever they do collaborate, Johnny Depp is kind of playing a, as as Sean was saying, you know, the Captain Jack Sparrow is kind of a parody of a character. That's where Johnny Depp is in the other Tim Burton movies for me, especially the, the chocolate factory and dark shadows. And like, they're all just weird characters. Whereas this is probably the most normal character that Johnny Depp will play in a Tim Burton film. And, you know, we're also looking at this 30 years later and knowing what Johnny Depp goes on to do and, you know who he becomes looking back now it's very different from what we get with the johnny depp film so i found his performance to be very um it's entertaining but also fresh and unique even 30 years on
0: yeah i think i felt the same way about crybaby especially when you get get in the hands of a really eccentric filmmaker with an artistic vision like tim burton yeah mike meyer thoughts on johnny depp well i don't know if i can top sean's
2: uh (laughs) comparison (laughs) but i'll 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 i'll, uh, I'll attempt with the vertical horizon uh, comparison he's got everything you want he's got everything you need uh johnny depp in this role is uh i mean he's amazing and and yeah i think he's a, the exact right uh person to play this title role uh, i'm glad that you all brought up his later uh excursions with tim burton uh because yeah they do sort of become a quirks you know quirk stews or quirk salads mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. By the time you get a little bit further on, Um, but yeah, I think, you know, and Johnny himself talks about in interviews, like around the time that he was doing 21 Jump Street, Nightmare on Elm Street, like he was trying to distance, distance himself from like the more smoldery teen heartthrob kind of roles and yeah, really step out. And I think him taking this approach, this like mega hyper positive, you know um you know hey gang let's make a movie character like with a complete like and you know i think there's a lot of people who might have like because it's the 90s or whatever like maybe would have sprinkled a little bit of irony Mm -hmm. uh in it to make it seem a little bit more cynical and there's nothing about it that was he was just a straight ahead uh like i i think that it's one of those where maybe at the time, maybe people wouldn't have like instantly pegged him as the right guy for this role. I don't know who they would have, but he delivered the goods in, you know, every conceivable way, at least for me.
0: Sean, what were you going to say about Johnny Depp?
3: Well, I just hope that if he ever writes an autobiography, he uh, calls it quirk salad. Because I think that's <laughs> <laughs> it sounds delicious.
2: Uh Quirk salad, colon, my life in scarves. <laughs> a Johnny Depp story.
0: <laughs> well, we we know Johnny Depp and Martin Landau were both great. We know Bill Murray is always great. Who else stood out in the supporting cast to you guys? Mike, we'll start with you. I definitely
2: did. I, I mean, I like Jeffrey Jones as Criswell. Um, kind of playing him more toward, like, a standard, like, I mean... There's a world where you could have played Criswell closer to Ed, I guess, where because he, his energy is a lot – his real energy versus Jeffrey Jones's energy is a lot higher. It's a lot more showman-y, um, whereas it's like, yeah, no, this is the guy. He's been around. You know, he's been around the block. He knows, he knows the deal. He's you know, dyed-in-the-wool kind of huckster. Lisa Marie, I don't know if that's just her yeah. or if that's the character. But I thought that was, knowing what little I know about Myla Nermi, Vampira. like she, you know, she was sort of this mysterious, you know, like she did put on the persona as she went out because she also had a, well, not a past that she was trying to escape or anything, but she was, you know, someone who fleed like a conservative, what was it, a Finnish religious household and she was trying to build up an image And she was really protective of that. And being that kind of like breathy, smoldery thing, like I thought that worked really, really well.
0: Chad, anybody stand out for the supporting cast for you?
2: Uh, I'm going to go with Sarah Jessica Parker, just
1: because I thought she played the, you know, girlfriend who kind of gets pushed to the side when another female with money comes along.
4: This is unbelievable. I mean, I would have bet a million bucks that Ed wouldn't finish this picture.
0: Yeah, well, it ain't finished yet, kid. Anything can happen. Yeah, had a scratching distance. Oh,
3: Poodle, you made it. I wasn't sure you? you got my message. Well, of course I made it. Today's the file clerk's big scene.
0: <laughs> that's right.
3: See, the usual gang of misfits and dope addicts are here.
0: Janet, I want you straight... Say, who's a lug? Stri- I want you staying away from the old willow's place. Why, that's Tony McCoy. He will be portraying Lieutenant Dick Craig. Away
3: really? From the How much money did he put up?
0: None, I but his dad gave me 50 grand. You
3: stay. Mm. Wood production's the mark of quality.
0: And the funny part is I just found out that Deborah Winger was supposed to play that part and turned it down.
3: Wow.
4: Mm.
0: So mm. you can only imagine what that would have been. Sean, who's your favorite member of the supporting cast outside of the obvious Bill Murray?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I think they all do a great job. I, honestly, I think George the Animal Steel <laughs> as uh, Tor Johnson is just I- incredible. Like he, he just... Im- he, he's great. Like from the moment he's on there, you know, and he's, they're watching, they're watching him, you know, d- during wrestling. And then when Edward goes in and, and starts talking to him, you know, you know, uh, as he's getting a massage and telling him he wants to make this movie with him, and he's just, he's pitch perfect. He looks, he embodies Tor Johnson. Like
0: he, he's, he's really incredible. He does a great job with it. And he's responsible for one of the sly Disney references in the film. Uh, when Ed does go backstage to, to talk to him and he says, I make movies, Sean, in your best George the Animal Steel as Tor Johnson accent. How does he respond to Ed? Like the Mickey Mouse. Like the Mickey Mouse.
2: (laughs) Yeah, something like that.
0: Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Oh, real quick.
2: Can I make another note of Mike's, like we talked about Mike Starr earlier and I just love when he shows up in movies specifically. Like he's, you know, mostly known for Goodfellas. Like he's known as like, and, you know, being of that ilk. And I love when he shows up in- where you've taken that character from that world and just pasted him in a world in which he doesn't belong. <laughs> like, <laughs> like whether it's Dumb and Dumber or this, like I think he he plays an amazing, like old school cigar chomping poverty roll studio owner.
0: You know, I think you couldn't have cast him better. Yeah. I mean, he's really like I said, if you haven't seen Billy Bathgate from which was another touchstone picture. I, I love that movie and, and he's really good in that. He's got a small role in that as well, but all right. The last thing I want to ask about just in general, we talk talked about the acting. We always try to talk about the script and, and the direction in that sense. And I was going to say, do you think that Tim Burton as well as Scott Alexander and Larry Karashevsky, did they give Ed Wood and his collaborators the proper treatment? Sean, you mentioned earlier about how the fact that a lot of these people were outcasts in the industry, but yet were presented with an image but it must have been really fun to work on these movies, even if the work was exhausting. Like I said, did, it, did the filmmakers behind the camera also treat the characters with the respect you were hoping?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think and I think really when you watch Ed Wood, uh, you know, it was um, it really laid the blueprint for a lot of the kind of biopics that kind of came out post Ed Wood. Um, like you said, I mean, the writers obviously have worked on a lot of other um Uh, biopics you know but i think you know the characters uh, they're kind of presented as i mean it's a hilarious movie because it's so absurd and like the characters like i said there's a bit of hyper realism to each of the characters but i think they're never played for like look how stupid these people were to try to make these you know terrible films and everything it's really presented as a hey i just want to tell stories and i'm going to get my pals together and we're going to go make a movie and i think you know I i saw it when i was a teenager and then like i said you know meeting you group of misfits and everything in, in college, we we kind of have the same thing. Like we were, you know, none of us come from like uh, wealthy connected families or anything. We're all kind of just have this, Hey, I want to tell a story. And and I, I, I would say, I would point out Mike Meyer made a, a, a film uh, that was set in the 1950s and all of us mm-hmm. are in it. And it is like, it is really the ultimate kind of, in my mind, uh movie where everyone's got this part we play and we're all just you know it's just it's just it's just it was fun you know it was a lot of work i remember all the late nights and we're all kind of pitching in we we're all carrying equipment we're all lighting things and then we're jumping into act and you know and i think that ed wood i i think he probably had a very similar thing and i think when you read the book nightmare of ecstasy a lot of people they do always say that edward uh ed wood he always wanted to tell these stories and make these things and maybe he didn't have the talent but he had the optimism and i think there's probably a lot of that you know you see that and you're like it's 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 inspirational so i think yeah the movie does a great job of not not making fun of these people but really celebrating them
0: yeah and that seemed to be the basis of it it seemed like alexander and karashevsky kind of had that in mind chad do you have a what are your thoughts on the script? I know you sometimes you can be critical of some of the things you watch in their scripts, but no, the script. I just first I
1: want to touch on Sean's comment about Myers' film that we were all in. I believe that was also shot without permits. Um, <laughs> everything we did was without permits, but no, I thought the script uh, was really well done. I for taking a character that I would say probably the majority of the audience at that time wasn't familiar with, and making a movie that. No, as Sha point out, it's it would have been easy to make it very sardonic or very ironic, and they didn't it it played it straight and it just said like look, here are this here's this this group of people who got together and made movies, and this is what they went through and I think by playing it that way, it makes it you know a lot better than had they tried to be like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, look at how crazy this group of you know people are so I I mean, watching it again, um, I'm going to bring it up real quick because I don't know if you're going to talk about it, but just I think from the writing to the production, the cinematography and, and the sets are incredible. And so I think this movie, you know, I don't think anyone but these writers and director could have pulled this movie off the way it was.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point. Mike, I'll give you the last word. Do you agree with the on that thought about Tim Burton's involvement as well as Scott Alexander and Larry Karashevsky's script? Oh,
2: Oh, five thousand uh, percent! Real quick, to I, I really appreciate you guys uh, bringing up uh, "Sold," the movie we all made in uh, <laughs> yeah. in school. It it uh, it gave me a lift in the heart. And uh, if there's any parallel to Ed Wood, I remember one night uh, we were all over at my apartment. And we were filming uh, Sean over and over again, mm-hmm. uh, working this adding machine. And there was this <laughs> light overhead that had this really cool starburst pattern. And it, was fold, and it was doing this because it was folded up in a way that it was not supposed to be folded up. And in doing so, a white hot drip of aluminum hit the desk right next to DeKalb's hand, almost giving him a scar for life. And so we're, we're all just sort of like, uh, we're a little bit of Criswell, we're a little bit of Ed, we're a little bit of that. In that regard, Mike, in that moment, you are our Tor Johnson. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm Richard Dreyfus and I'm Tor Johnson. We're keeping score at home. Yes. I'll never forget when Mike, when I got uh, Liquid Hot Magma uh, nearly dripped onto me.
2: <laughs> almost, and, you almost lost your thumb. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But,
0: but The funny part is, what I love about your movie Sold is that it, I'm pretty sure it gave all three of us, on four, if you count you, IMDb pages. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, it, yeah well and which in whenever it when actually went out
2: to to festivals and whenever it was 2002 three it was really hard to get on there so i was uh glad to glad to be the person to to make that possible in the in my own little way but yeah i mean did they do them the proper treatment i think you know absolutely i think You know, it's it's one of those, and I think uh, Sean and I might get into like, was it an accurate treatment? Mm -hmm. Probably not. But you there, there's enough in the story where you could have, you know, like Chad said, leaned a certain way to make it a little bit more cynical, make it a little bit more sardonic, and maybe make it something like where it's still about the wacky experience making movies, but it's more like, you know, maybe more something like living in Oblivion. Mm-hmm. Um versus like what it was, but and what I you know and I'm dealing with this in in a in a movie I'm working on currently where it's like yeah the you know you're if you're you're dealing with a a, a a group of people that isn't normally seen or represented in film you know you could go and talk about all the highs and the lows and maybe dwell in the lows if they seem interesting but ultimately like no he did a great he did a great thing by saying like yeah man it isn't all about hollywood and stars and unlimited budgets and everything else and you know your celebration for making a good thing is you know being famous and rich and you know lauded as an artist it's just like nah man sometimes it's about just coming together and making a thing with the with people that you love hanging out with and ever since i saw this movie for the first time like it did set me on a path to seek out more movies like this to see if there were more experienced people who had these experiences. And because of that, like I feel like my film going experience has been a lot richer because of that, because I found like, by watching this movie, I'm like, Oh, sometimes it's like this, you know, cause at the end, Ed didn't like set the world on fire. He became, he made a movie that got him labeled, the worst director of all time. But that dude won. He won in every way that's, that was meaningful to him. And that
0: was, and yeah, in that regard, hell yeah, they won. You know, it's so funny, on this show, we always like, always, Chad and I always have to do a part where we, we give the movie a score on a scale of one to 10. I'm gonna go ahead and assume that and might probably have it as a 10, unless for some reason it mm-hmm. dips down into the nine range. I kind of waver back and forth between a nine and a ten, just because I watching it again. It, it was a little bit different than I was expecting, but I have to kind of push it up to a ten now that I'm talking to you, Chad. Do you want to make it unanimous, or do you want to be the Russian judge at the you know, on the yeah. Olympics here? Yeah, I, I hate to do this. I'm, I'm
1: giving it an eight because I just watched it, and I don't know. Maybe it was the mood that I was in, and I, I watched it right before we record, started recording tonight. I felt it dragged a bit in the last half hour, and. Uh, So, um, but again, I just, I love the cinematography of this film, which I I don't think I'd really ever paid attention to before. And I, my big question is, I want to know who has the tombstone name plates at the beginning of the film when the camera is tracking because those were not at the LACMA Tim Burton display. I want to know, hopefully somebody saved those and they are in the crate or vault somewhere that they can be put on display later on. But yeah, I, again, I, I, you know, obviously this is not a bad film. I just, I guess I don't have the,
0: the connection to it that the three of you have. Well, yeah, I would say, say the two, because I, I, I was watching it again last night and I like I said, I hadn't seen it in a long time. Mm-hmm. If, this was a, if this was a 10, if this was the perfect movie in my eyes, I probably would have seen it a lot more. So I do have to kind of round down to a nine. Maybe mm-hmm. it's a 9.49 and then I rounded down to nine, something like that. But that's what we all thought. Chad, what did the other prominent critics of the era have to say about Ed Wood? All right.
1: You're you're not going to be surprised by any of this other than I'll say the hardest part was um, in this first review, which I pulled from Roger Ebert, as I like to do. His review did not really leave a lot of um, soundbite clips. So this is the best that I could pull out. He says, what Burton has made is a film which celebrates wood more than it mocks him. And which celebrates, too, the zany spirit of 1950s exploitation films, in which a great title, a has-been star, and a lurid ad cam- campaign were enough to get bookings for some of the oddest films ever made. 3.5 stars. Which, I think that pretty much echoes what we've said. Mm-hmm. Um, Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly said, Burton, Tim Burton seems to have found, a way, found his way to the primal essence of movie making, the pure, simple desire to create illusion. Since Ed Wood had no talent, that desire came through in every desperate, see-through detail of his movies. And it comes through in Ed Wood, a comedy of the ridiculous, in which the ridiculous turns unexpectedly sublime. He gave it an A.
0: Wow. Gleiberman always really, really hard on the movies. I'm, I'm surprised. Get an A out of him.
2: Yeah. Given his hate for the Coen brothers, I'm surprised. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and his hate of Pretty Woman when it came out. So Yeah. Someone has to be that guy. Well, from a trivia standpoint, we we usually would have to bring up some minutiae from the film, but we, for, for the fact that we have these guests who really love the movie, I thought we could kind of use it as an example to maybe just bring up Ed Wood as a filmmaker himself. I mean, one of the interesting discussions that we had on our email thread before we started was the idea of uh, trans rights in Leonard Glen Glenda, which I, I watched a movie today for the, for the first time. I think, Chad, you told me it, it plays like a documentary, more <laughs> or less, like it's an educational film. And it was... Yeah. It was pretty interesting. It's definitely a product of its era, but I think uh, Mike, you mentioned earlier about the idea of is he the worst director of all time? I mean, he did have a lengthy career. He could, I mean, we've seen there has to be people who've been much worse. I mean, where do you, where, where do we come down as Edward as a filmmaker in his entire oeuvre?
2: Well, but by no stretch is he the worst director of all time, right? He's he kind of is. He kind of exists as this avatar for all the bad directors who existed at his like at like when he was working. Uh because he wasn't the he wasn't the only guy making movies this way. You know, he definitely had things that colored his movies and made them his own, you know, specifically his like super purple dialogue, you know, his his Angora stuff. But in terms of making movies let's say in sort of a shabby, careless way, you know, that aspect of his filmmaking, like he is in no way unique. And uh, so he he got the title worst director of all time by the Medved uh, brothers in 1980. Nine, so 1980, this is not even considering home video. And I would, vent, you know, I know, you know, as close to a fact as you can there were way worse movies made than plan nine from outer space that went direct to video Um, there, you know, and especially now where you get into uh, like YouTube filmmaking and like mega, mega zero budget filmmaking, you know what, say what you will about plan nine. Everything's in focus. Everything's exposed. Well, you know, (laughs) everything, you know, there's, there's a lot of quality control, like, you know, in the movie they made it seem like, Oh, there's like, Half a dozen people working on this movies. But then you look at the credit lists of these films and you're like, no, this was a skeleton crew,
0: but you know, this there's a good chunk of professionals working on here. Well, that's the one thing though. I think I mentioned before what I watched Bride of the Monster, I could not get over the fact that it just didn't really cut together very well. Like almost every shot, the the, the actor would be in a different position when it cut to the close up and when it like the eye lines didn't match. It just looked like they just cobbled it together as best they could, but I can understand if you're on the cheap and you got to get going. It's like we don't have time and enough film to be able to shoot multiple takes, probably. And they didn't. Maybe they didn't. Maybe as the skeleton crew. Probably didn't have a, a someone doing continuity or a script supervisor. Maybe.
2: Well, and to that point, like Ed did not possess the skills and the attention to detail to really make a solid movie or a good representation of the things he wanted to say, but he had things he wanted to say. And what he wanted to say was interesting. And when you take it to, I guess, the opposite side of the spectrum, where you're like, well, I'm going to go see a movie that is very adequately made. You know, everyone has committed themselves adequately. Things do cut together. Eyelines are perfect. You know, everything just sort of comes together. And it just sort of sits there artistically, which is the better movie? You know, to me, sometimes when you talk about like a lot of those details, it's like, of course, they're important. But when you're talk about talking about them in lieu of like an interesting time, you sound like, a, you know, an 80 year old guy talking about a, black, a basketball player because he's got good fundamentals. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's not super exciting. It's like, of course, it's, you know, it's fine. It's great, but it doesn't really stir the blood. And Ed Wood stirs the blood. Glenn or Glenda is a great example. I think his legacy, you know, plan nine kind of is what it is. And Glenn or Glenda is, I would say as a movie, is a bigger mess than plan nine. But thematically, here's a person who is, you know, uh, you know, in dealing with the sexual issues of right now, here's a 70 year old movie with a guy who's wrestling with these things and the public's perception of him. And he's coming out and he's saying, "Hey, I'm a person. Can you treat me like a person?" And and not even challenging people like, "Here's the road to maybe how you gain a better understanding of who I am." And you know, I've read reviews of people who've read who've seen Glenn or Glenda recently, and a lot of them are like, "I just get whiplash <laughs> because." Mm-hmm. You have that, but then you also have like, oh, and then his solutions at the end of the movie were just like, oh, and uh, maybe you could project your identity onto someone else. And Mm -hmm. and it's like, mm, nope, but it's also a guy who isn't, you know, a mental health professional, Mm -hmm. also barely a film director, (laughs) trying to tackle these things. Like he's genuinely doing the best he can and no one else is talking about this stuff. And that makes him a great director, but I'm also glad he did get the title because, because of the worst director, because he's saddled with that, that's also what launched him into
0: stardom long after his death. You can, you know, you kind of, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Well, what's funny was having been watching this movie just now, I, I didn't really get an idea of why did Ed Wood become a filmmaker. Like he was in the Marines, he just unless he just had this story to tell. Sean, you're the one that read Nightmare of Ecstasy. Do you get an idea of? why ed wood got into it and where and where do you you've you've saw you've seen some of his movies as well i where have where yeah. you come down on ed wood as a filmmaker himself yeah no i mean i have to agree I, I, he's definitely not the worst filmmaker i
3: mean i would argue there's a lot there's a lot of big budget filmmakers today that i think are worse like some of the stories they're telling are awful <laughs> uh but um uh, reading the book like uh as a kid i think his dad gave him like a super eight film camera um so he was like telling stories and everything as a kid i think he went into um you know, he went to go fight uh, for the U.S. during World War II because that was the thing you did. You know, it was uh, you know, it was good versus evil type stuff. And then, yeah, I think he just wanted to tell stories. And when you look at Glenn or Glenda, like I watched it when I, after I saw Ed Wood, uh, so it would have been like the mid '90s or whatever. I I saw Glenn or Glenda, and it's 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 not as hilarious as like um the movie Ed Wood kind of shows it. It does show some of like the silliness and everything, and you know, it is it is kind of played for laughs. Him uh you know uh ed wood is you know him dressed in the angora sweaters and stuff but at the same time like he surrounded himself with these people and they all kind of accept him and he accepts them which is you know there's a lot of acceptance i think in the movie ed wood and then with glennar glenda it's it's almost boring because it's so sincere in a lot of ways i mean then you know it's got it's got some real madcap stuff with the devil and everything kind of dancing around and bella ghosty for this drink right i mean you know and that 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 part is like hilarious, and I think that kind of speaks to like Ed. I think saw Glenn or Glenda as perhaps his only chance to tell a story he wanted to tell, so he just went for it, and he kind of poured his heart out into it. And I think I think the modern equivalent would almost be like The Room, where The Room is just a a really terrible movie in terms of like it doesn't make any sense. Like the story is ludicrous. The acting is bad and everything, but there's no doubt that Tommy was so went into that movie, wanting to tell a story he wanted to tell. And now it's celebrated, you know, people go to midnight screenings. I just saw another uh, one here in Australia. I've seen, uh, I've seen the movie with, um, uh, I know with you, Mike, we've seen it before together, Mm -hmm. you know, in LA and everything. So, you know, so obviously, you know, that kind of thing still happens. And I think, uh, you know, yeah, Glenn or Glenda, is 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 more of just his kind of manifesto about acceptance um you know with the uh, within the you know trans community kind of thing whereas then plan nine is actually yeah yeah it's it's pretty pretty poorly put together and everything but um you know it he was all he was also trying to tell the story there he was trying to talk about uh, the dangers of uh you know nuclear proliferation and everything right because it, it talks about like just you know humans destroying themselves um Bride of the Monster, uh, when I watched that, I actually didn't think it was that bad. I mean it is it is pretty poorly cut together, but in terms of like other movies of its era, it's it's not really that bad. So he obviously had you know, he had some talents. Um I think he just I think he probably just suffered from not having a big budget, not yet like like Mike Meyer said, he does didn't have a good attention to detail. He's pretty sloppy. Um, you know, he's trying to rush these things out. He probably only had a you know a few weeks to you know throw this stuff together he didn't couldn't pay people uh couldn't rent out spaces and everything so you know he's just he's just trying to get as much on film as quickly as he can and, and you know our motto in, in 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 film school right just fix it in post it'll be fine
0: <laughs> everyone's motto in post yeah and then yeah. the funny thing is like and then we talked about it before too is like this idea of how much of it was true, and and how much of it was depict, correctly depicted on screen, and whatever the artistic liberties. Like, I noticed they did a, they they kind of didn't really talk much about his alcoholism. I think, I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned that there are scenes when you see him at a bar, but I I read that like Dolores Fuller, some of the objections she had to the movie was that, you know, she was a, she was much more supportive than Cerdisca Parker's character was, and and mm-hmm. how she they she got divorced because of the alcoholism, which we didn't really see that. It wasn't like it was it had something to do with him being. A transvestite, you know, and then Bell Lugosi's family and 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 some of his collaborators have said that he didn't curse like that much. But I'm thinking that that's, that's a shame because that's what we all remember from that movie. Some of those great lines of dialogue from those writers yeah. is just is him cursing. And I thought it was. I watched it with my with my wife last night, and she was saying how like as soon as the movie was over, she looked up Gregory Walcott because she was like how come the movie depicted him as being like some choir director at the church when it was like, he was a working actor. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't know what that, that, that choice was, why they, why they felt they had to mm-hmm. play that for laughs. I mean, the whole baptism scene works for laughs, but then it's just like this idea. I that think, like Yeah. From what I understand, both were true. He was the choir
2: director and he was a working actor.
0: Really? Is that from that what character? I understand.
2: Yeah. I think, I think that was the, that was the case there. I think, I don't know. I might be wrong. I can check IMDb. I think this was in a way a springboard for him, but mm. he was involved in that church. And he, but he also, but it also wasn't like, you know, uh, Tony McCoy, where he was just like, yeah, I'm the financier's son who also wasn't bad. Like in bride of the monster. Yeah. nearly like, as no. bad. He's yeah. pretty good. But Ed did say, he, he said Tony McCoy was the worst he'd ever worked with and in real life and it's like i just don't think he likes naturalistic acting (laughs) i think he just wants people to come out and do very like you know he wants bella he wants you know dudley manlove to come out and do stupid minds
0: you know (laughs) that's that's what he thinks is good stupid (laughs) well as we do on every episode we look at it there's a personal connection with the actors or filmmakers and we've actually got some good ones for this movie uh, in 2008 chad and i went to a screening of the film at the Arrow theater in santa monica where we used to go all the time and scott alexander and larry Karashevsky and martin landau were all there to do a QA. and i got all three of them to sign my ed wood dvd chad you said you got martin landau to sign yours as well i did yes yeah. and i got a picture with martin landau i'll see if i can dig that up and put that on the socials and then in 2012 Chad and I went and saw Alice Cooper in concert, and then like three days later, we saw Aerosmith in concert, and both bands brought Johnny Depp on stage to play a couple of songs.
1: Yeah, and I have since seen the Hollywood vampires, which is Alice Cooper, Joe Perry of Aerosmith, and Johnny Depp in a band, because apparently Johnny Depp moved to Hollywood to be
0: a musician, not an actor. That's I'd I've, I've heard that as well. Owensboro, Kentucky's own. Speaking of, we'll transition from Owensboro, Kentucky, to Evansville, Indiana. Sean Reynolds, <laughs> to tell us when you lived in, when you lived in Los Angeles. You did plenty of sightseeing and visits to places where Ed lived and shot Plan Nine. Tell us more about that. I did, and I,
3: I just you know, Ed Wood, the movie had such a huge impact on me because, like I said, it really inspired me to go to film school. I met all of you in film school, and uh, you know, despite the uh, the distance and You know, twenty years later, I still consider you guys like some of the closest friends I've ever had. Like the stuff we went through was just amazing. You know, and so like to me, Ed Wood, it means a lot more to me than just like this film that I like. It really kind of set me on this path, and you know, and uh, you know, I ended up in Hollywood, uh, working. I worked in the film industry for a number of years and everything, and then um, yeah, so I I kind of went around. I saw a couple of the different places that Ed uh, lived. Um, I saw like the apartment in Hollywood that he lived with Kathy and the liquor store. He uh, would go and cash his checks uh, in. In his later years, it was really sad. I saw the apartment he died in, in North Hollywood. I saw uh, where Bella Lugosi, the apartment he was living in at the end of his life, and Bella's um, grave site. I saw um, Criswell's um, grave and everything. So I would go and look at these things. You know, I and I saw like Quality Studios. That's where he filmed Glenn and *Glenda* and um, uh, *Plan 9*. That's still there on off of Santa Monica Boulevard. Um so you know I went there. I actually I had seen um the uh the soundstage where he uh filmed Bride of the Monster. It was right next to um Tower Records in Hollywood. Uh oh, nice. I went to go take photos of it and it Literally the day I went to go take photos of it, the day before they had bulldozed it. Uh I think it's a parking lot or something now. But you know, I just loved it. And and you know, I went to I went to the church that uh, you know, they they conned the Baptists into, you know, bankrolling plan nine. I went out there, you know, I just I just loved it. And I kinda of going into these places just it gave me the sense of like, you know, there's a history obviously. You know there and everything. I saw like the office he had on Santa Monica Boulevard, right outside of Silver Lake, and everything. So yeah, I just I just really loved Ed Wood, um, the movie, and then it really kind of got me into Ed Wood, the actual person and all that kind of stuff. But you know, again, to me, there's just so much more behind it than just um, you know the appreciation for his wanting to tell stories. You know, uh, the, the cast of Ed Wood, all of their handprints and stuff are outside of the Vista Theater in Silver Lake and everything. I think they might have had the premiere there and everything. So, yeah, but, you know, to me, it was really about it's this film that I had I had no desire to see it. My dad was like, oh, you should watch this. And I, I watched it and it really just set me down this path. And I met these incredible people who, you know, have had a huge impact on my life and everything. And here we are 20 years later talking, talking about it on this podcast. So that's that's a really incredible thing.
0: Yeah, that was the funny part was watching it last night as I obviously enjoy this movie, but it took on a different, different level because it reminded me of watching it with you guys. Or like I said, I, you were the one who introduced me to it, Sean. And and I feel like a lot of my enjoyment of this film is due to you. Like, because I feel like when we were in college, there was so much uh, dialogue that you would quote back to me with the accents. <laughs> we were doing the scenes all the time. I'll even put you on the spot right now, Sean, if I was to say to you, don't you want to do another take? Ed seems like Big Baldy had some problems getting through that door. What would you say? <laughs> I'd say, no, it's real. Like in in reality,
3: Lobo would deal with that every day of his life. You mm. know? So, I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. And and uh, there's certain there, I watched it the other night just to kind of give me, and I've seen it so many times that I only kind of half watched it because I knew I like, I could almost quote the dialogue. Or, you know, I know all the, all the scenes beat for beat, but I I even hear some, some of the dialogue I actually hear in your voice, Mike, mm-hmm. the Calver. you know, I think of like, yeah, Mike Meyer. I remember us like quoting it all the time. Like we just, you know, it, it becomes this fat, this, this hidden language, you know, the fabric of our friendship and our experiences, like you know, making films as, as, as young people and everything. So uh, yeah, it's just, I, I adore this film. It's always going to be an 11 out of 10 for me. You know what <laughs> I mean? So um, I can't Not- separate the actual movie from the impact
0: it had on my life and, and that kind of thing. It's it's not a monster movie. It's a supernatural thriller. Yeah, uh, exactly. The, uh, well, in that case, I'll I'll roll into the last thing we like to bring up. Which what is the legacy of this film? Because I was trying to think. I feel like the legacy is more just on a personal level, and with uh, with it's. I, I want to believe it's inspired filmmakers because I don't really know. On the whole, we 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 love this movie so much, and I wonder what it's like to the rest of the the filmmaking community and whatnot. You know, did, did Ed Wood's career get a bump after this film? I think Mike, you said that. That uh, years later, he wasn't considered the worst director anymore, perhaps. But I I I remember Mm -hmm. seeing like I remember seeing those box sets of his films in the late nineteen nineties after this movie had come out. And I, you know, the 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 film Tim Burton's film, just like Ed Wood himself, I feel has attained some cult status. But is it more popular among film students like us, or or those who admire Tim Burton's career? You know, I mean, we went to the LACMA exhibit about Tim Burton, and I I, Mm. I was really really disappointed that ed wood is sadly underrepresented at that exhibit Mm -hmm. there was there was i think there was what was it chad it was like a there was like some of the maybe the makeup that that bella wore or Mm -hmm. something there was there was nothing in ed Ed wood i went through that entire exhibit and you're just like okay here's a bunch of batman stuff and here's a bunch of steepy hollow stuff and here's edward scissorhands and then it was like here's ed wood and then here's Planet of the apes and it was like oh come on give me a little bit more you know but (laughs) but i feel like there's definitely people who were ingrained in the film community seem to like it because I mentioned that Chad and I saw it at the Arrow and in, in Santa Monica back in 2008. The Cinematheque, the Arrow, is part of that. The Cinematheque screens it all the time. I think Larry Karashevsky does Q and As with other directors for their movies, and so as a result, they they keep pre- bringing him out to show Ed Wood. They just did it again last year. So I mean, now that you got you guys obviously love the movie as much, Chad. Do you think that what is the legacy of this movie? I think it definitely plays better to a wannabe filmmaker, though.
1: Now I will you know kind of throw an asterisk in that does it play better to a filmmaker pre two thousand you know now that we are in a digital age of filmmaking where everything is short, do the filmmakers of today look at it as antiquated you know, but yeah, I think it's definitely at best a cult classic uh I don't think it really has a lot of wide appeal and i don't I don't know if that's subject matter or um just. Because it's not a, a a scarf wearing Johnny Depp. If you would wore more scarves in this movie, maybe you would do
3: better. I think I think you're right, Chad. I think Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood, so um, <laughs> that's probably why it plays so much in L.A. It did. I remember uh, I, I used to live in Portland. It played in Portland once, and I took a bunch of friends there, and they all just loved it. And I think it's mm-hmm. kind of an undiscovered gem for people. I do also think, in terms of its legacy, like I think we talked about this uh, briefly before, was that it. Um, It does lay a lot of the groundwork for a lot of the biopics that came afterward. Um, You know, Mm. you kind of see it. uh, It's I think if you watch it now, it's probably I think you know Chad, you said oh I've dragged a little bit, but I think some of that might be because um, the formula that it laid the groundwork for has been like rehashed over and over again, um, quite a bit.
0: Mike, I'll give you the last words on the legacy of the of Edward. The final word. The final.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think. I mean, I don't think it's just filmmakers and I don't think it's people surrounded by an industry. I think the legacy of this movie is, at least for me, and I'm not the only one, is it kind of dug this weird inroad to enjoying films that wasn't available to me before, that I actually didn't think about, that not everything comes via Hollywood, that, you know there's a different there are, there's just a straight up different way to enjoy films like um, because this led me to the movies of Ed Wood and people talking about them. And, and, you know, a lot of it, So I, I guess I'm sort of known in my circles as a guy who loves quote unquote bad movies. <laughs> and, and they say, and to, to some people who say like, why, why do you, why, you know, explain yourself. Um, and the best I always do is, like, when you watch a good movie, like, a, like what you would consider a classically good TM good movie, you say, that was a great movie. Let's say it's a Martin Scorsese movie. It's like, wow, he did it again. Do I know anything more about Martin Scorsese? Probably not. Whereas, you know, and Sh- Sean talked a little bit about Tommy Wiseau and, you know, the, the, you know, basically having no safety on the sincerity and stuff like that. In a lot of these cases, the question isn't like, was it good or bad? It was who made this? Why did they make (laughs) this? It's this, it becomes these little like message in a bottle type things. It's like more, you know, anthropology than, than art appreciation. Because like it's not like Ed was the first; he certainly wasn't the last. These guys are all out there, but it's because of movies like Ed Wood that they're starting to get appreciated and appreciated according to what they do well. You know, we were talking about Lloyd Kaufman earlier. You know, you have guys like you know Chicago's own Herschel Gordon Lewis and Florida's Don Dohler and Bill Grafe in Florida, and you know, countless names. And there's a huge rabid community for these things like during the pandemic you know that was my social interaction was like going on like discord and like hey do you have you know do you have some weird jim Wynorski movie or ted v michaels like it's it's all just brothers cousins grandchildren of ed wood and this movie was this you know it preached the gospel of ed wood but also You know, in doing so is like, hey, you know, there's another way to enjoy not just film, but art. And I think if there's any like, you know, there's anything that would be the legacy of that movie. It's that it's that it's it helped like defined define and announce that to a larger world.
4: What a show. Everyone was terrific. Paul, your second act monologue actually gave me the chance. Oh, thanks, Eddie. I got the early edition. Hot off the presses. This is the big moment.
3: Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even
1: show. Sent her copyboard to do the dirty work. Screw
3: you, Miss Crowley.
4: Do I really have a face like a horse?
3: What does ostentatious mean? Hey, it's not that bad. You can't concentrate on the negative. Look, he's got some nice things to say here. The soldiers' costumes are very realistic. That's positive. Rave of the century. Well, I've seen a lot worse reviews. I've seen reviews where they didn't even mention the costumes. Like that last Francis the Mule picture. It got terrible notices. Huge hit. Lines around the block. That's right. Don't take it
0: too seriously. We're all doing great work. Do you really think so?
3: Absolutely.
0: Normally, this is the part of the show where we would discuss the Hollywood pictures or Walt Disney Pictures that were released around the same time. But because of the the breadth of this discussion and that we had, we're just going to save those other two films for the next week's episode, and we're going to kind of dive into the box office returns for Ed Wood itself. Um, It was released on September 30th of 1994, only on two screens, I believe, just New York and Los Angeles. Uh, It finished 16th place with seventy one thousand dollars, which was an astronomical per-screen average, actually. Uh, The other films that opened against it were The River Wild, which finished in first place, Jason's Lyric, which finished in third place, and The Scout, which finished in eighth. Uh, The only Disney films that were on the chart were two of the films we talked about in the last episode. Quiz Show was in fifth place, and Terminal Velocity was in sixth. In its second week, Ed Wood expands to 600 screens, and it jumps up to ninth place. The new release is that week, were The Specialist, the Sylvester Stallone, Sharon Stone action movie, that finished in first, and the comedy Only You, which finished in third place. Uh, Wood then falls to 13th place and then 16th place in its final two weekends on the charts in October. Uh, the other new releases that came out around that same time would have been Pulp Fiction, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Little Giants, Exit to Eden, and Love Affair. Unfortunately, Ed Wood drops off the box office charts after only four weeks on the charts. It grosses $5.9 million in its entire theatrical run. The budget was $18 million. So, I mean, very low budget, but it didn't quite make it back. I like to believe that it would have made it back on home video. Do you think this would have
1: worked better had they released it instead of New York and Los Angeles first, if they would have done Alabama,
0: Louisiana, and put it in the South, and then went wider? Those repressed Okies go for that, man. <laughs> Totally. Well, yeah, yeah. If you break down the box, I was was just going to point out that it seems like there's a lot of big star vehicles in the late summer and early fall. I think we talked about it on the last episode, Chad. You know, you got Meryl Streep, you got Sylvester Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Tom Hanks, Harrison Ford. And I wonder if this kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. And I mean, I, I also wonder, is this movie a drama or a comedy? Like it gets awards consideration in some comedy categories, but I watched it last night and I wasn't really laughing. It was just put a smile on my face, but Mm -hmm. it's, it had a lot of dramatic heft to it. It's a dramedy. It's that's too easy to say, right? (laughs) Mike, do you think, did it have enough dramatic elements, Mike, or was it more of a comedy then?
2: I mean, it's, it's hard to say, like I would consider it a, you know, I could see where you could market it either way, but where it was easier maybe to market it as a comedy because it is so
0: ridiculous in places.
2: You know, yeah. it be- it veers into places that a that a straight drama wouldn't, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I mean if it's a com it's a comedy, but then it's also a black and white biopic about an awful filmmaker. So I wonder mm. who is the who is that market? And something in Chad and I always like to talk about on our show, I'll pose it to you, Mike, as well, is when do you think would have been a good time to release this film? Because it seems like this October era is a lot of horror movies, or I mean I guess awards contenders. Maybe that was yeah. their hope, but
2: well, I'd say I mean obviously early awards contenders, but this is this is so clearly a a Halloween movie. Like it's not a, you know, obviously it's not a strict horror movie or anything, but you know, the the tone even for the even for the sillier tone, like Chad was talking about the cinematography earlier, every single scene is lit like a studio horror movie. You know, you just have these like it's not just black and white it's in these pools of light and there's darkness everywhere. And even though, you know, and just like, uh, you know, just like Halloween, it's like, yeah, it's got, you get your, you get your scary movies, but you also have your like, you know, Paul in Halloween special and, and all like the lighter fare that just has the Halloween aesthetics like that perfectly fits in there. So, yeah, I think, I think late October for Halloween and then maybe, you know, Early, early, early award season. Well,
0: if you look at 1994 with this release schedule of having Ed Wood come out at the end of September leading into October, I looked at, like, all of the big awards contenders from that year all came out around that same time. I mean, Forrest Gump came out in the summer, and then Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, Shawshank Redemption all came out in that September-October time frame. That's all your Best Picture nominees. And the only other one that was nominated was Four Weddings and a Funeral, and that came out, like, in February and March. So just kind of a different time. And that leads into the awards consideration we'll look at for Ed Wood. I think Mike already kind of alluded to it as well, but the film does win two Oscars. Martin Landau wins Best Supporting Actor mm-hmm. and Rick Baker, V. Neal, and Yolanda Toussaint win for Best Makeup. Uh, Martin Landau also wins the Golden Globe and Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Supporting Actor. And he went, he's named the funniest supporting actor in the <laughs> American Comedy Awards. Maybe that answers our question that's from it. before.
1: Now, did he also get nominated for a, t- a Kids' uh, Choice Award or the Young Actors Award? The Young Artist? No,
0: no. Oh. He was young at heart, Yeah, but maybe not uh, for the Young Artist. <laughs> uh, the film... Every time he drunkenly curses, they slime him. <laughs> <laughs> the film, Ed Wood, was nominated for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. It was named one of the top ten films by the National Board of Review, It was nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Picture Musical or Comedy, lost to another Disney film, The Lion King. And Johnny Depp was nominated for Best Actor in a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. He loses to Hugh Grant in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, Lastly, Scott Alexander and Larry Karashevsky were nominated for the Writers Guild Award for Best Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen, and they lost to four weddings and a funeral i mean all good choices four weddings and a funeral is a fantastic movie but it's it's kind of like we had on the last episode uh quiz show kept losing to forrest gump you know it's the same concept when the movies (laughs) the movies develop a reputation and become a phenomenon they kind of end up sweeping a lot of the awards now mike as a guest of the show i would i'm going to pose this question to you this is something that chad and i bring up on every episode now when michael eisner and jeffrey katzenberg were running disney and touchstone pictures Katzenberg himself had written this manifesto talking about how Disney should invest in smaller movies not necessarily going for home runs he called it going for singles and doubles and in your opinion do you think this movie Ed Wood would fit that Disney idea of those singles and doubles rather than going for a home run?
2: I think so I and and like I think it's a you know, I long for those days right now because uh, not many people do go for the singles and doubles anymore. The sort of mid-budget, even genre-leaning movie. I think this absolutely fits that uh, fits that category because, you know, sort of as you said, like, who is the audience for this? It obviously has an audience for that, this and it's a very vocal audience, but it's not like the tiny black and white movie about weird people who make movies, <laughs> you know, it's, and, you know, bless them for that. I think, it, I think it fits perfectly into that, into that little, uh, into that category.
0: Yeah, it seems like a good reason to to make a movie or to start a Touchstone Pictures if you're a Disney. You know, I mean, it only costs $18 million. It wins two Oscars and it brings Johnny Depp to Disney. Chad, right, would you agree that it's a good choice? Oh, yeah,
1: and you look, you know, like we said earlier, Tim Burton was coming off of five uh, successful films. So he had that track record. So you're working with a, you know, hot property director, Johnny Depp coming off of 21 Jump Street. Again, this maybe wasn't the role that, those 21 jump street fans wanted to see him in but you're getting to show that Johnny Depp is a talented actor and and like i said 18 million
0: you know that's that's nothing for a company like disney right you would so. you, could, you could only hope and <laughs> but the, but the weird part is the movie's not streaming anywhere you know i, I always like yeah. to t- point out where people can watch this movie and it's not i mean i as i mentioned i do own the film on dvd i actually bought the first dvd release the one that was recalled because it had some bonus features that really? were not legally cleared. <laughs> I mean, there were copies going on eBay for a hundred bucks. I think I got it for about 40 or 50 bucks and mm-hmm. I've held on to it for all that time. And now it's autographed by the writers and Martin Landau. So it is a bit of a collector's item and I've since bought yeah. it on iTunes. So I have my own digital copy. If anyone's curious, as I did, the three Ed Wood films that are featured in the movie, Glenn or Glenda, Bride of the monster and plan nine from outer space, they're all streaming on hoopla digital. The, the, from the public library the only thing that's weird glennar glenda and bride of the monster are only streaming in color on hoopla plan 9 was yeah. black and white i found a black and white but to, the other two ones you had to stream in color yeah
1: yeah i'll also say that bride of the monster is streaming on the shout factories app but it's only the mystery
0: science theater 3000 version so i wish i would have known i would have totally watched that yeah. when i mentioned it to my wife she was like now you tell me now we can
2: <laughs> i was i'll say this too also because all these all of these movies including a lot of Ed's other movies have been in the public domain for years. You can kind of find them anywhere, you know, their, their uploads of way varying qualities are all (laughs) up and down YouTube. So, you know, (laughs) no need to subscribe to
0: a service for this, for for his Uber. Well, as we mentioned earlier, our next episode is going to be a little something special. Chad and I have cooked up for you because Ed Wood is the final Touchstone Pictures that was released that year in 1994. But Disney didn't stop. They made five more movies between Hollywood Pictures and Walt Disney Pictures. So we're going to do a special episode where we just kind of gloss over those movies and look at their releases, their box office, their awards consideration, and stuff like that. But what are those five movies? Well, you're just going to have to tune in next time to find out. This is Out of Touchstone. My name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter and Instagram accounts at out of touchstone, you want to shoot me an email it's out of at at gmail.com my co-host chad smart you can find him on twitter at chad smart sean mike i'll give you guys a chance to plug your social media handles as well sean we'll start with you
3: yeah well uh i don't really have a very public one although uh you can uh check out uh at melbourne underscore ghost signs on instagram um if you are interested in uh australian history uh otherwise Uh, Yeah, just a big fan of not just of Out of Touchstone in these movies, but I'm a big fan of yours, Mike and Chad. So uh, thank (laughs) you so much for having me on.
0: Uh, Mike Meyer, give us the plug. All right. Well, you can
2: uh, you can uh, find some films that I've made, including my feature film, Heaven is Hell. Uh it is currently it's going to be on tubi soon, but uh for the time being you can see it on YouTube. Heaven is hell movie is the channel name. Uh I direct a web series called Days of the Living Dead. Uh that's YouTube backslash Days of the Living Dead. Got a feature film, uh documentary film on the haunted attraction industry. Uh the fright the called the fright stuff coming soon. Uh and if you want to see pictures of some productions as well as uh pictures of my adorable children uh just go to <laughs> at meyer film inc uh at instagram All right. chad we'll give
1: you one last
0: word before we say goodbye
1: you know it's just been great having uh mike and sean on this show uh we don't get to see each other that often or talk to each other as much as we probably could given the fact that technology exists now but i think this has been a great discussion of a good film i think we should have done this
3: when we reviewed cabin boy Oh, oh well, I'm always I'm always up for coming back if you uh, if you need a little uh, backup on the uh, the love for catboy, Chad. You just let me know. Oh god, yeah. and
2: that, yeah, I'll do a to... deep dive on uh, Chris Elliott for you. <laughs> oh
3: god,
0: you know what? You know what? This is a one off. We don't need to bring you guys back for either one of those. But sincerely, sincerely, this does mean a lot to me. I'm so glad you guys could be here, and uh, this is out of touchstone. And we're out of time. Music swells. Cut. Print. That's a wrap.
4: Don't Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, go to outoftouchstone.com. Be sure to follow at
3: Out of Touchstone on Instagram and Twitter. And also, please like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool.
4: Thank you. Good night. Pull the string! the string